Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Our guest today, Pamela Marone, is the founder of Marone Bioinnovations Incorporated and multiple other companies dedicated to finding, developing, and distributing biological pesticides. She's on the boards of several institutions as well because she's dedicated her life to developing and promoting alternatives to synthetic chemical pesticides, and she advises others who have started companies in this field. Biologicals are naturally derived from the microbial life in the soil or from plant extracts. Most are allowed in organic viticulture and agriculture. Yet they integrate so well into conventional programs that they are beginning to help transition conventional farmers to organic farming. Many of the biologicals Pam has helped develop over the years are now the standards for organic pesticides used across the wine industry. This fascinating field of study is far behind where it should be, and that means there are exciting opportunities for discoveries and investments still to come. Pam is a fantastic spokesperson for the biologicals and makes a convincing case for their importance in an industry dominated by petrochemicals. I'm thrilled to be able to share Pam with you through this interview. She has been doing great work for such a long time and has been helping to steer viticulture and all agriculture in the right direction. Enjoy! Dr. Pamela Marone, CEO and founder of Marone Bioinnovations, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Great. Glad to be here. Just want to correct. I, on August 2nd, I stepped down from my CEO position at Marone Bioinnovations, but I'm always the founder and still on the board. <laughs> okay, great. Well, wh- and what are you doing now? I'm executive chairperson of a pair of companies called Primary Bioag Innovations and Global Bioag Linkages. And we're tired of seeing so many um, ag bio biological innovations not get get to market and get the adoption that we think they should that are really great um, innovations, but just don't get the pharma adoption that they should. So we're helping innovators commercialize and gain adoption of their bioag innovations. I'm really excited by that. So this is like I'm, getting the word out. Getting the word out, but also just what does it take to have a grower adopt your product in terms of, you know, there's a lot of great innovations. And then the innovators think because they have this great innovation that they're going to get grower adoption and it doesn't work that way. I'm also advising six companies, uh, five five founded by women um, from uh, innovations and farm from farm to fork. So I'm, I'm real excited about that. It's fantastic. So so let's step back. So tell me the, the world that you work in, biologicals, what is that and how would you explain it to somebody on the street? Yeah, so just like penicillin came from a mold or your antibiotics come from microbes or cancer drug uh, Taxol, uh, breast cancer drug Taxol came from the Pacific U, um, biologicals are the same, same. They're natural substances that can be found out in nature in the rainforest or or even like one Marone Bio found from an an organic uh, rice field in Northern California, one of our products came from, or a Buddhist temple garden in Japan. And we take those those microbes or plants and uh, identify the substances that are causing the pesticidal activity and turn them into products that can be sprayed on the crop or put in the soil or on the seed to control pests and improve crop growth. Got it. It's like producing products from the natural biology and soils and plants that can replace synthetic petrochemical pesticides. 
That's correct. And in sometimes some cases they do replace synthetic chemicals. And in some cases, if it's a conventional farmer, not an organic farm, farmer that can't use uh, chemicals, uh, they might want to combine them together and get better results than chemical only programs. We see that time and time again. So they could rotate them to stop the bugs from developing resistance um, or, or use them in a tank mixture and uh, use a lower amount of the chemical and they can get better results and also stop, as I said, stop the pests and plant pathogens from plant diseases from developing resistance where they don't work anymore. So I can see how it's important for you to, to promote that aspect of them, to, that they are very easy to integrate with conventional agriculture yeah. practices because that's the majority of agriculture that's happening right, right now. So to, to have the adoption, we need to get those people involved. Right. Is it, do you see it as a, as a sort of gateway drug to going fully biological or fully organic? Or, or are you not as concerned about that? Oh, no, I absolutely do see it as a gateway drug. There's no question in my <laughs> mind that even today's biologicals, you could develop a whole biological program. Um, but f- as the basis of your pest management or plant health, plant health program, and then dial only in chemicals when needed. But we're not there yet. You know, the infrastructure yeah. and, the, and, the, and the status quo is, is not quite there yet. It's been a tough road just getting the integration of biologicals into conventional, never mind going all biological, but it's definitely possible. For example, I can give you an example. When, yeah. when a, a, a toxic chemical was banned for controlling cuddling moth in the Western United States, um, everyone was, the growers were up in arms. What are we going to do? What are you going to do? Well, there was a wide area program, regional wide program, University of California, grower groups and pheromone companies to come up, use pheromones as an alternative. And indeed, mating disruption pheromones became the basis for controlling codling moth in the Western United States across all fruit and nut growing areas. Very successful. And then, you know, you only, if, if in a really bad year and the, the pheromone isn't quite strong enough, you might then now um, supplement it with a, a bio, biopesticide, another biological or a reduced risk chemical. So there's a, a great example of where biologicals became the basis of the whole pest management program. We're seeing that th- that's possible now for navel orange worm in almonds. The almond board um, has thrown their weight behind um you know, getting to more sustainability. And there's great data showing that you can control navel orangeworm pheromones. But sometimes, you know, when there's just higher populations, you can, you need some something to supplement. And uh, Marone Bio has shown that you can supplement with uh, a microbial biopesticide or in combination or not even not with, but you can do it in combination with a, a reduced risk chemical pesticide. But if you're organic, you don't need to and can just use the uh, pheromone plus the biopesticide. Great. So, and let me just ask a clarification question. Are all biological controls or pesticides allowed in organic farming? Uh, As far as, no, actually there's a few exceptions. There's a couple that have not, have inert ingredients. So those would be the carriers, the dispersing agents, the the, uh, preservatives and such that are not on the organic allowed list. So in order to Got be it. organically listed, you have to have your active ingredient has to be approved by the National Organic Program um, if, it's a, if it's a biopesticide or if it's a, a plant stimulant or a fertilizer by OMRI. Um, and, um, and then your inert ingredients have to be uh, also approved in the case of a biopesticide by the National Organic Program or OMRI if it's a biostimulant or biofertilizer. 
Got it. So there are some natural materials that are registered as chemical pesticides that are allowed in organic. Why? Because they're from a natural source and they don't contain any non-allowed inert ingredients. But why are they registered as chemical pesticides? And there's two examples. One, one would be the spinosids and trust is the brand name of the organic formulation. And then mm-hmm. um, the pyrethrum flowers um, and the brand name Pyganic. Those are registered as chemical pesticides because they have a toxic mode of action to the pest and they have some non-target effects, but they are allowed in organic because they are from all natural materials. That's interesting. So there is a, you still have to be a little bit careful (laughs) as an organic farmer, what you spray, you know, it's not just, just if it's biological doesn't mean it's uh, necessarily non-toxic. That, that's right. Just just because it's uh, from nature or, or biological doesn't mean it's non-toxic. You have to prove it. And if you go through the biopesticide pollution prevention division at the EPA, it is the safest category of products. It's hard to be to really get that that classic. If you're a biochemical, like the um, if you're a natural plant extract or something that's a biochemical, it's really hard to get that designation as a bio biochemical biopesticide. Um, you have to go before a committee that meets and says, you know, this has a non-toxic mode of action. So, you know, if it's registered by the EPA in the in the as a biopesticide, you can rest assured that it's been given all of the the uh, a real look at, at at everything related to toxicology and endangered species and and uh, acceptability for food and so forth. Yeah. Great. And I want to just want to step back. You've had a pretty interesting career and as well as just a personal inspiration I, from things that I've heard. Uh, you want to tell a little bit about how this path personally and professionally sort of unfolded for you? Well, I wanted to be how an entomologist you... since I was about seven or eight years old. So it's this uh, obs- obsession or lifelong dream. I'm a weirdo, I guess. But most, you know, a lot of entomologists <laughs> are, so we can, I can say that. But I did grow up <laughs> on a beautiful mini, uh, a mini farm, 40 acres in Southern Connecticut, and uh, my father was looking for some pest control for gypsy moth that was eating all of his uh, prized dogwoods and other and other um, uh, trees, hemlocks and such. And so he he looked around and he went to the store. They recommended carbaryl, which was a, a chemical, and he sprayed it and uh, it killed everything. And the lady beetles, lace wings, honeybees were all dead under the tree. My mother was furious because she uses all organic methods. And, uh, and he switched over. He went back to the store and he asked what, what they had that was safer. And they gave him BT. And, you know, that was, uh, gosh, we've got to be talking about um, 50 years ago. So, um, <laughs> and when my father died um, in 2006, when I started at Marone Bio, I named it after dad, Ralph Marone. Most people think it's after me, but um, uh, because I found in, when I, we were going through his things in the garage, I found um, old bottles of BT a bacterial bioinsecticide, the originally commercialized bioinsecticide um, in the garage. And, and I said, wow, and, you know, he, he, he was dedicated. He never used a chemical after that and did okay. But he, he always had the, the, sa- the same opinion or feeling at that time that other farmers have is that this natural stuff, does it really work? It's great for the environment, but it, does it really work? So I wanted to provide products that absolutely do work and can provide growers that return on investment I talked about. Right. And I know from my experience, working with organically allowed viticultural pesticides and, and fungicides and things like that, that they're, they're mainly preventative. So if you try to use them once you have a problem, right. they can seem really ineffective. Whereas That's if you right. integrate them from the beginning, 
you get a they're very highly effective so is that that's true of uh, of the products that you're working with and that's right you know like yeah so what would you say in terms of how not to or how to use those products to get the the most out of them and and not have this sort of uh you know yes because i know if you come with skepticism it's easy to prove skepticism if you misuse something so what's right what would you recommend in terms of approaching these products yeah you hit the nail on the head that most most products are preventative and and so you use them before the pests or pathogens build up i've seen too many times where someone has this huge population aphids that are just you know, wall to wall, plant to plant, leaf to leaf, and and then expect something to knock them down. Now, a chemical, a powerful chemical might do that, but that's not really great IPM. So using them preventatively before the, the pests or the pathogens build up, pest control advisors tell me time and time again, when they do that, they see season long benefits and better plant health, a, a total uh, difference in their program when they incorporate them in that manner. But if they're expecting them to be a quick knockdown of high populations or systemic, no, that's not that's not where they are. And but they can perform as well as chemicals when they're used properly. And that's the key. It's not do they work? It's how to make them work. And that's really important. There's still a lot of um, important work to do to educate the land grant extension specialists to become more proficient in using and recommending biologicals. And, and that's something I certainly would like to work on um, in, in the next decade of my my uh, career here. Nice. See, and some of the places where you're finding the sources of these products are, are really fascinating. And, and I know I've heard that you even are discovering some interesting things about the ways that you know, farming happens or the ways that a piece of land is treated will change the microbiology. Can you talk a little bit about some of the some of the interesting things that you're doing in terms of discovery and then some of the surprising findings you're having like along that quest, you know, in terms of soil microbiology and 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 how these these bacteria and other things are changing and developing and creating the the things that we can work with? Yeah, today it's it's a fantastic time to 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 be an innovator because the tools we have that we didn't have a decade ago or 20 years ago when or when I started up in the companies is sort of a needle in a haystack looking for these biological uh, solutions um, and what's going on in the soil. Today you can uh, use uh, genomics to sequence the microbes that are living in your soil and find out what's going on. And there's no doubt that a healthier soil has a higher level of of microbial biodiversity. So more different kinds of microorganisms, different species and different strains um, than than a a poor soil. And this is then related to what crop variety you're selecting. And what's really exciting is to seeing the interaction of the plant and the microbes. So there's a lot of research going on. We have a lot more to understand, but understanding that plants put out natural signaling molecules, signaling compounds that attract microbes to the plant. And varieties can be complete bred where, without thinking about these microbes, and then they, can, they won't even signal the microbes anymore. So you can have a two plant varieties, one that's really good at attracting these microbes and another one that's not. And there's a lot of evidence showing that on every crop um, you can do that. So in my talks to breeders, I'm saying, you know, huh. it's no longer just breeding in isolation. You have to breed um, in not understanding what's happening um, in the soil and what microbes you want to attract. So that's really exciting. So time and time again, where um, 
I, I can go to a soil now and in an organic farm soil is the best place to go hunting because that's where you're going to find high levels of microbial biodiversity. And that's where I can find a lot of these types of products. Um, if you go to a Midwestern farm soil that's been um, corn or soybean soil that's been farmed conventionally uh, without cover cropping um, or no-till for many years, you're going to find a much lower level of biodiversity. And uh, so uh, it's just totally different. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and it sounds like that's a like a, a reinforcing cycle. You, you know, you you try to do work in those kind of soils. It's you're going to have poor results too. So you're going right. to think that what you're using is the problem, but it's the fact that the overall system is already weakened. Uh, is my guess, it would be my guess that right. you encounter it, that. Organic farmers kind of laugh, but they also are pleased that. There's all these healthy soil initiatives because the whole basis for organic farming is having a healthy soil and you have a healthier plant, you use fewer inputs. And they're very happy to see all these global um, initiatives to, to healthy soil. Um, yeah, people have definitely. gotten healthy soil religion, but really that is where it starts. And organic farmers have been the innovators on this front. And now we're getting the science um, to prove uh, what we knew all along. Right. And I've, is that where this term suppressive soils comes from, where it's you have a, a really healthy, biodiverse microbiome in the soil that actually helps keep some of these pests at bay? Yes. In fact, um, I've done collecting in those kinds of places. So you can go onto a farm and see an area where the crops are thriving and you can isolate the microbes there and you see a completely different uh, set of microbes than if you have a, a spot in the, in the field that's not doing quite as well. And so, um, so that's exactly uh, it. It's called suppressive soils. And now, again, there's there's professors at various universities that are uh, actually figuring out what's going on there. And they're finding out there's a, a, a woman uh, a professor in in Belgium, Dr. Hofta, who has found out that um, there's these groups of pseudomonas bacteria producing natural cyclic circular, these cyclic lipopeptides. And she now has unraveled um, the types of interactions between certain crop varieties and uh, and and suppressive soils with the higher numbers and the uh, more diverse types of these uh, pseudomonas with these cyclopeptides leads to a suppressive soil and keeps the pathogens, the plant pathogens, the root rots at bay. Yeah, that is amazing. I mean, it's it's incredible what's happening and what we're finding. Um, you know, one of the, I, I would say the number one complaint that I've heard, or maybe more of an excuse that I've heard from conventional uh, grape farmers, for example, is that organic is too limiting, um, that there just aren't enough tools in the toolbox. And and I say excuse because I think, you know, I've always seen that as like, if that's your reason for not doing it, you, you know, then you just are predisposed not to do it in the first place. Because I look at that and I say, that's a reason for us to dig deeper, to invest more heavily in this kind of research and development to find the things that are natural and organic and biologically derived that can be better tools and more tools in the toolbox. Is that kind of the way that you've approached it? It sounds like your approach has been that too, that it's there's opportunity here. It sounds like there's a lot of opportunity here. Still. There is a lot of opportunity, but I want to again say that um, most organic farmers I, I talk to don't want to use a lot of inputs. You know, they start with their healthy soil, but then they know that they sometimes have right. to. And it's tough converting, especially on the weed side. And so I, I do empathize with those growers who say they're not enough tools. And it's particularly on the on the weed 
you know, controlling weeds. And I've, I've spent my uh, career looking for uh, bioherbicides and, and I've talked for 10 years about, you know, we got something coming at Marone Bio and it's, it is coming, but it's been a much more technical challenge than I ever imagined. And they're out there. Um, and I, I fully anticipate that I'll be dedicating um, some more work in my, my career uh, to, to this area that it, it would be, it, it's just really tough to control weeds organically. You can do it, but it's so expensive and time intensive. Um, and, uh, and so th therefore some better biological tools there would, would really help tremendously tr transition more acres to organic. And that's what growers tell me that if you had a, you know, if you started with, uh, with something that we could better control weeds, we, we would convert. Now, is that for annual crops mostly? I mean, I, I feel like more and more studies yes. are showing that weeds aren't that bad if you're in a perennial crop, like grapes, for yes, example. Yes, I would agree with you that uh, the, the grape, grape growers have figured out a, a good ways to, um, to, to control, control weeds and annual crops are, 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 are a tough nut. That's right. Yeah. So since we since you brought it up about the lower inputs uh, from organic, let's let's do some devil's advocate questions here. You know, can the use of these biological pesticides hurt the microbiology in the soils as well? I mean, can they be detrimental to di biodiversity if they're if they are acidal? <laughs> well, not from what yeah. we've seen. So because of that very question, we've got we got that question because Marone Bio is developing a biofumigant actually to replace some of the toxic chemicals, and and we also have uh, the one that was I mentioned that that was uh, found from an organic rice field in Northern California is called Stargus, and it's a biofungicide. What's well, a fungicide? It's going to control control other you know other bacteria and fungi. It's also a biobactericide. Well, we had our lab look at what it was doing. Both of these mi uh, microbes were doing in the soil, and lo and behold they were actually recruiting other microbes to the plant. So what was remarkable is that they were not, not only not reducing the microbial biodiversity, they were enhancing the my, microbial biodiversity while they were reducing the plant pathogens. And I'm going like, isn't nature grand? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. Do, and yeah. if it's, if it's, do they have any impact on mycorrhizal fungi? If they're a antifungal, they were actually increasing the mycorrhizae, so they were attracting. They were attracting them. That, that's what they were doing. Wow. Yeah, they were okay. actually and bacteria, both bacteria and the fungal uh, mycorrhizae. And so, yeah, we did a, a, a we had a, a UC Davis fantastic UC Davis student intern, which is now an employee who loved um, bioinformatics, and she she did a, a, a fantastic study showing the, the, all the different uh, genus, gener, genus and species um, before and after treatment. And uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, wow. um, uh, yeah. And we see this also with our other product, Magistine, which is uh, Burkholderia rhinogensis found from the Buddhist temple garden in Japan. Um, it's actually a dead bacterium, but uh, because um, of the EPA required us to kill it just because they thought of a new species and they were unfamiliar with it. So it's delivering the natural compounds to the soil. And what we found in that case also is that that, that particular bacteria, bacteria uh, fermentation product was increasing root hairs on the plant. Wow. Um, and huh. so that was, it wasn't the only mode of action, but that was one of the ways it was able to ward off plant parasitic nem nematodes. Um, it also had some direct huh. effect of, by some of the compounds in the broth on the nematodes themselves, but the combo was having a direct effect on the plant. And we thought that was pretty cool. 
That's very cool. And the nematodes, because they prey on the roots, basically. That's right. The little That's right. root worms, basically. They pr- produce the plant. Um, produced in response, the plant produces more roots. And then what was also interesting is that this particular product was not harming beneficial nematodes. So again, these <laughs> things that are out there in nature are, are interacting all the time with other microbes and other organisms. And uh, they're, um, they're, not, they're not killing what they don't need to kill. Right. It's like a symbiotic thing mm-hmm. that has developed between yeah. them and the plants. Yeah. That's yeah. very cool. Well, let me ask you another tough question. I, I know that one of the advantages I've heard you talk about to biologicals is that they can go through development and testing phase and be brought to market much more quickly yeah. and with less upfront investment than chemical pesticides. Is there any concern that it might be too fast, like in the sense that we might not know the long-term effects of using these products in our environment and food system? You know, this is a very interesting question and a, 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 a one of controversy because I've, I've, I've done a lot of, of writing about this and speaking about this. And that is, so when, and especially because the ex, extension specialists at the land-grant universities are used to chemical pesticide, which has 300 million behind it in 12 years, and then thousands of field trials, and then it's launched big. So there's a huge amount of information known before it's launched, whereas you launch a biological in, let's say, four years of, 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 of data, development and data, and a few million dollars, and so you don't have quite the quite the database. So there's criticism that, oh, are you launching it too soon? No, because there's growers who want to try the product because it's solving an unmet need, a solution that a chemical is not perfect at. So they want the product so we can get it out there, version 1.0. But because the regulatory system is very stringent, you you have to do toxin, ecotox, birds, fish. Daphnia, which are crustaceans, lady beetles, lacewings, parasitic wasp, honeybees, hive studies with honeybees, larval studies with honeybees. It's pretty well vetted from the toxicological standpoint before you get to market. So health is, and safety is not an issue with a fast to market. It's more that, gee, we don't know all the possible uses of this and how to use it the best. And maybe we only have 100 field trials when we launch or 200 instead of 1,000. So we look to our early adopter growers, and many of them are organic growers, to help learn about the product more. But uh, to deny a grower the access to the product that could help them with a need would be silly. So it's more it's a, just a different business model than a big chemical company. So you go version 1.0, then you have imp- more, 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 more crops on the label, more pests, more pathogens on the label as you get more data um, in another, maybe a, an improved formulation. So you have version 1.0 and 2.0 and 3.0 on, on so this in- incremental improvement and, uh, growers, growers, we work with love, love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. So what are some of the, the benefits to using biologicals instead of synthetics? Like what are, what are you finding? What are you seeing? What do you know? Well, you know, the first number one thing is always, are you going to get a value or a better ROI or a cost benefit? And, and that's number one, a grower wants to know, is it going to be good for my pocketbook? And, um, I mean, there's many other considerations, um, which I'll talk about in a minute, but if you don't offer that value added, um, it's a tough sell to be just on the environmental or other factors. So it's really important to get the data that it is offering a value over whatever you're comparing it to, whether it's your, your, your existing organic program or, or a, a, your existing conventional program. Now, right. it also, growers do want to choose it because um, chemicals are reg- under more regulatory scrutiny or they've they've lost one like chlorpyrifos um they they can right. a lot of growers will rotate or tank mix 
to prevent resistance or delay development of resistance or stop resistance. Um, if you want to ship and go, export and go, you can spray right up to harvest and then go, and you don't have you don't have this long pre-harvest uh, interval that chemicals do, especially in times of tough times to get labor and um, very difficult. Um, every farmer I talk to um, has has labor issues. So you can spray in the morning, be back in the field in the afternoon because these biologics have such short re-entry intervals. Uh, and if you're talking about uh, carbon footprint or you're worrying about uh, sustainability because your food channel partners are uh, drumbeat on the consumer wants uh, transparency, sustainability, biologicals lower your carbon footprint. And Marone Bio has a study to, to, to show that. So here, here, here's a, a plethora of reasons to of the benefits and to choose a biological but number one it has to work um and 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 that is like we talked earlier is to 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 offer a value um and to understand how to make it work in your program great and i i've I've heard of uh they're they tend to be better at preventing resistance buildup in the the pests so that the you can use the biologicals and over time they'll continue to be effective and the pests won't sort of adapt around them. Right. Why is that? Yeah. So, that, I'll give you I, an example. I... so yeah. So we have a microbe, uh, let's say it's, it's uh, grain Evo. That is an insecticide from a new species of bacteria discovered by the U S department of agriculture, agricultural research service in, in under the hemlock tree in Maryland, that particular microbe produces a cocktail of compounds. It produces a uh, purple pigment, which repels the insect and stops them from feeding in one minute. It produces um, chromamids, which um, disrupt their stomach, and it produces a suite of proteins. All of those um, compounds work together in synergy. And if you just individually test individual compounds, they might only be weakly active, but when you combine them, they do a great job of, of, of controlling uh, the pest. And so it's really hard for that bug to overcome one, two, three major different groups of chemistry. Whereas a synthetic chemical is one type of compound works in one way, and it's typically a mode of action which can be typically overcome more easily, which is why on most of your um, for pro- new newer insecticides and even some of the older ones have limits on the number of sprays per year you can use. And that's because they know that if it's overused, more than five sprays, for example, then you're going to start getting resistance development to that chemical. Gotcha. That's fascinating. So it's this sort of the the complex nature of yes. the way the the microbes develop and release yeah. their various chemicals. That and it would be the same with plant extract. A plant extract has a cocktail of compounds. It's not just one thing doing the job. Well, since you brought up plant extract, I wanted to ask you about regalia um, because powdery mildew is probably, you know, for grapes, the number one fungal enemy. And that's what that is to treat, uh, if, yes. if I'm correct about that. That's right. Can you talk about that? Like what, where that came from, how, how effective it is, you know, what, what's going yeah. on with regalia? When I started the company, I was looking around for things to commercialize that were already partway there while our own um, microbial and plant extract discovery was, was going on. And so we found a company that was kind of orphaned um, because they just couldn't, didn't have the capital and means to bring it forward. And they had licensed some technology from Europe that was that uh, knotweed has a suite of compounds that can boost plants' immune, immune systems, systemic acquired resistance and induced systemic resistance, so they call technically, and, um, and, and can uh, ward off diseases like plant powdery mildew. 
And regalia is best in class on powdery mildew when used preventatively. And we have thousands of trials and it's been on the market for uh, since version 1.0. And now we're at probably version, I think version 4.0 with different formulations and uh, different yeah, wow. levels of knotweed. And uh, we harvest the knotweed from Asia. It's dried um, and, and uh, ground to a powder, uh, a, a, a powder of, the, of the plant, dried plant, and then put in a, a stainless steel tank with hot ethanol. And then out comes the extract and it's really sticky, nasty stuff. And then um, in, in consistency, and then we have a formulation to make it work properly. And that's where the key innovation has come from um, in the company to make it work well and spray and not clog up a, a spray nozzle and not stick to the inside of the spray tank, which was some early versions had some issues with that. <laughs> how, uh, how does it compare to just sulfur, like micronized sulfur? Um, it works as well as sulfur. Sulfur is a lot cheaper, well, of course, but uh, um, but there, there's some it, there's some uh, disadvantages with sulfur, which you know you can't use it in hot weather and it's irritating and so forth. So so we've seen right. that it's great in a program with sulfur. Do you want to reduce your sulfur? Um, you can you can and there's another uh, oil, stylet oil that's very good on powdery mildew. So you could develop a nice right. all biological program for um, or biochemical program for for uh, powdered mildew with uh, integrating uh, sulfur, stylet oil, and regalia into a program. Oh, while being organic, too. All organic, yes. Yeah. Um, do you have any, I guess, uh, I've heard you talk about it's a great time to, to be a farmer, to be getting into agriculture. I, I wrote an uh, article recently called um, Farmers Are Cool, and I know that that doesn't prove anything. <laughs> but I... <laughs> um, but, uh, I, I think it's a great time it does seem like there's a bit of a, a sea change happening and and the work that you're doing seems to be at the forefront of it of just you know discovering what's right there under our feet and and finding effective ways to use it that are safe and and can replace a lot of the stuff that a lot of the damage that we've been doing over the last you know half a century um what do you have any words of inspiration or um, thoughts for you know a young person who's thinking about what to do with their life and maybe loves wine and is just you know has their eyes open to think opportunities? Well, you know, um, uh, COVID has certainly given giving farmers a lot of challenges, and and uh, yeah. if you're a Midwestern corn and soybean farmer, you know you may not be as as well as as good as well off as you as a California specialty crop grower but all farmers are having real challenges today with um with um you know with labor regulations um covid so it, it it's it it, it it i would still say though it's a good time uh because <laughs> i just i just listened into the regenerative food um uh, investment forum a food and ag investment forum uh, uh last week and the stories of the young farmers who are getting in and converting or the number of private equity or, or investors who are taking farmland and converting to organic and regenerative was quite inspiring. And they're finding that they can get, it's not just about yields, because it's also about nutrient density and quality of the crop, but they're getting yields um, in the cases of if it was a row crop, you know, as, as, as good as, as uh, any conventional grower. So it was exciting to see that they're is and it's very much driven by the food channel that listens to the consumer. I heard at the AgriPulse uh, Western Policy Conference as well a couple of weeks ago an hour-long uh, uh, speaker about what the consumer wants, and there's no doubt 
that younger consumer is driving this trend. So yeah. during COVID, uh, local regional food systems have held up better. And so yeah. there is a real opportunity. Now on the innovation side, I can't keep up with the number of companies that are starting up all the way from farm to fork. And I'm so excited about the interface between precision farming, big data and pest management and, and crop health. Um, now being able to characterize your soil gen with, with genomics and find out what's going on beneath your feet. And then I talked to uh, a, a, two innovators who last week who have ways to capture disease causing spores, fungal spores in the field real time and tell the farmer quickly um, whether they have to spray or not. Well, this is going to help a lot on biological pest, pest and disease management because um, you can better time these preventative sprays to actually when the spore is there instead of two weeks before or just using weather forecasting, which is not as accurate. So it's just a very, there's a lot of money going into startups of all sorts um, and along the, the whole farm to fork continuum. So um, both from the farming end and from the innovator end, I think it is a great time. And we'll get through COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, we will. hopefully. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's touch and go here in the United States. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Do, do you have any um, startling statistics at your fingertips that would really, you know, open people's eyes to, to maybe the need for these biologicals, their effectiveness, or just some of the, the fascinating potential of, of the natural world that you're digging into? Sure. So let's see, are there some startling statistics? Okay, so uh, more than 50% of your human drugs are derived from natural sources, but only 15% of your pest management tools. So we mm. have a, there's a whole world out there um, to, to, yeah. to, to work on to get there. And 70% um, of Marone Bios and most biopesticide companies' sales are to conventional growers. So clearly they are being adopted by conventional growers and about 30% organic growers. So conventional growers seeing the need and chemical pesticides are growing. It's a $60 billion industry growing at about two to 4% per year. Uh, the biological segment globally is when you add up all the companies, which are many small ones, um, it, it comes to about 3 billion and it's growing somewhere between 15 and 20%. So uh, they're, they're, yeah. we're still small. But uh, it is definitely um, the fastest growing segment of inputs are the biologicals um, in, 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 in crop production today. That's great. We didn't talk, we talked a lot about biopesticides, but there's two other categories. There's biostimulants, which reduce crop stress yeah. and increase crop yield without controlling a pest. That's also growing double digits. And then there's bionutrients, and there's a lot of activity there in companies that are using microbes to reduce uh, chemical fertilizer, which causes dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico or nitrate problems in California. So there's a lot of innovation going around bionutrients or biofertilizers as well, also growing very fast. That's fantastic. Yeah. And what else did we not talk about that we should talk about? I think that we've talked about a lot of things. I think that we're just okay. at the very early <laughs> stage, but we're at the very early stage of uh, innovation and, and what's going to happen on the farm uh, we're, there's just so the science is is moving at such a rapid pace that yeah. every year there's new developments that can be applied to how we understand the farming system. And it is an ecosystem. So yeah. I do think that we are I spent I said, why is it taking so long to get here? But I, I do see <laughs> science uh, after 30, 
three, 30 years and three decades working in this, that we, we are moving along the continuum to a yeah. more regenerative, holistic and ecologically based crop production system. Yeah. I mean, for, for somebody like you who, you know, your whole life has been dedicated to this, is it, is it kind of exciting right now? Like, do you see enough of a, of a change where you're starting to be like, oh, this is, wow, you know, finally kind of, I don't know. Is there, is there, is it hopeful? Is it, in, <laughs> that, it is are, hopeful, you, are you feeling hopeful? on the venue I'm in when I'm sitting in a chlorpyrifos alternative task force, um, I, I, I lose hope that uh, <laughs> because, because everybody wants to, 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 to keep, keep the, these, you know, they're, 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 they just have a really hard time moving away from the tools, the chemical tools and, and believing that biologicals can help as much as I think they can. Um, but yeah. at the same time, then I go to a, the regenerative food, um, sustainable um, investment conference. And uh, I hear about what, what these innovative farmers are doing. And I do have a lot of hope. So I do. And, and then all the innovations. I talk to startup innovators every week and I'm advising several, as I mentioned, and seeing so many young people jumping in as an alternate career to be, becoming entrepreneurs um, is just fantastic. So that gives me, the younger generation gives me a lot of hope. That's great. So, you know, somebody who is on the cutting edge of a lot of these t- things from a very, uh, very high perspective. Do you have any, uh, you know, soothsaying future predictions or just uh, especially, you know, as it might relate to, let's say, viticulture in America, um, what you might see happening down in, in in the near future or far future? Well, everybody's jumped on the bandwagon of climate smart acts, and you gotta, you have to be. Um, the land grants and 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 CDFA and so forth talk about climate smart ag, and you have to be today because farmers, whether they believe in global climate change or not, they do know some is human caused. They do know something is happening, and so viticulture is going to change because if the if the climate is is warming, um, then different crop varieties are are going to be needed. And but I do believe. I am a technologist, so I do believe that science and technology can help a lot in this front, that um, drought-resistant, uh, heat-resistant crop varieties will be developed, um, and microbes that can, uh, I know a lot about microbes that can reduce uh, crop stress, reduce sun stress, reduce uh, heat stress, and make the crop more resilient. So I do believe there's a, a lot of opportunity here, despite um, the challenges for a changing climate, which we're seeing playing out here, right here in California. Yeah, very much so currently. Yeah, well, um, this is really fantastic. What you're doing, I think, is really hope bringing to me, at least. And and I want you to continue to do the good work. And I hope others will hear this and want to join in. Um, thank you so much, Pam, for doing this interview. I appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> All right. Hey, it's Adam. And I wanted to add a little footnote to the end of the show. About something Pam said near the end of our conversation. She alluded to a chemical called chlorpyrifos and how reluctant some farmers were to give up the use of this chemical in an attempt to find safe alternatives to it. I wanted to explain that the reason Pam was even on a task force to come up with alternatives to chlorpyrifos was because it was banned in California since it has been proven to cause brain damage in children. This is just one of the many toxic and carcinogenic chemicals that get used daily in farms across the country, and it's astounding, given what we know about the harm chlorpyrifos does, that anyone would be arguing for it to be allowed to continue to be used. You know what's more astounding, though, is that it's only banned in California. This chemical that is conclusively shown to cause brain damage in children 
is still allowed to be sprayed on our food in our fields across the United States, outside of California. If you have as much of an issue with that as I do, I urge you to get involved in organic agriculture. We need people who are interested in being part of the solution. If you're considering a career, consider agriculture. We need smart, caring people to solve the problems we're facing. We need to end the rural brain drain and start reinvesting in agriculture. And if you aren't looking for a move to the country or a new career, but still want to do something, buy organic food and wine. Show with your purchases that you want an agricultural system that does not include destructive chemicals. Buying organic is easy, and it's delicious. Cheers!